I think it's important to remember that there is a science behind it. And like we actually tissue sample these plants and soil sample. So we know exactly uh, the removal rates of these crops. And you know, every crop requires maybe a little bit different uh, mix of elements, but they are very similar where, you know, calcium is very important to our bodies and very important to the plant. And, um, you know, everything under calcium is important as well, but um, all these elements are easily replaceable. Like, we do have a science that replaces them. So it's, as these crops are taken off the field, it's something that we can replace, uh, either through manures or through Okay. All right. Well, welcome to episode four now of the Denton Farms podcast. Um, yeah, we've made it four episodes. We have. Almost halfway to 10. Not quite yet. Um, yeah, today we're going to talk about uh, grain shifts, uh, just shifts in the crops we're probably going to be growing in the coming decades. Um, Neil and I have talked about this before. Of uh, We don't think corn and soy are going to be king forever. Um, and probably going to see a shift to some more uh, lentil-type crops across mm-hmm. the U.S., we think. Um, I mean, there's a whole variety of other things that could be grown. And so, yeah, uh, we're going to talk about that this week. So, Neil, what do you think is going to be, you know, you're primarily corn and soy, uh, and you do wheat as well. You we know, do. what do you think, what, what are you thinking about in the next 10 years in your crops? You know, I think it's pretty interesting to see, uh, you know, what's happening in, in the world economy and um you know there's going to be a a demand for um you know oil rich products and uh, as renewables get more popular so um you know i know bungie over the last year or so maybe two years probably longer than we know uh behind the scenes but has done a deal with chevron where um, they're increasing their crush capacity and shifting it uh, into a renewable for, for fuel. For people who don't know who's Bungie. Okay, so Bungie is uh, just a large North American buyer of uh, soybeans uh, predominantly, but they do buy other crops. So in our geography, they're predominantly uh, soybean buyers, and we actually have a crush plant in Cairo, Illinois. Um they're expanding uh, their footprint in all their locations, and uh, they're going to um, be, you know, enlarging their crushing division so they can uh, crush more oil. This is a trend we're seeing, you know, across America. So it's not only Bungie and Chevron. There's multiple different corporations that are looking into these renewable fuels and seeing the benefits of, uh, you know, having um, – you know, a ready supply of uh, really rich uh, oil crops mm-hmm. available. Um, it kind of fits where um, the government is wanting us to, you know, use things rather than fossil fuels. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that it's kind of legislated into existence. So, mm-hmm. but they are a um, very efficient way to produce oil so i know uh over the next couple of years from Cairo south to the uh you know to louisiana bungie's vision is to have a million acres in canola a million acres is a lot of acres and um you know i'm 
I'm going to say in the south of Cairo, Illinois, there's less than a few thousand acres currently grown of canola. So we're talking about a major adoption of a crop that's never been grown in our area. Mm -hmm. And um, with that, it just kind of shows that there is vision in the future for crops in the Midwest and in the Delta Mm -hmm. regions that's different than cotton, corn, and soybeans. Mm -hmm. And um, as we see these renewable fuels get more popular and people realize how efficient they are, I think this will be a continuing trend. Um, You know, farming has always been about food, and uh, it will continue to be about food. But, you know, here in the last 10 years or so, there's been a shift to energy as well. So there's a massive need for food and a massive need for energy. And, you know, when you look at it, at the end of the day, we're producing more food than the world needs currently. And I know that as population grows, the need for that is going to expand. But, um, you know, energy is a focus of agriculture because we do have an, uh, you know, an abundant amount of crops currently Mm -hmm. in surplus so you know you need another avenue for those crops to go and energy is something that is also needed and cash rich Mm -hmm. so as uh you know as these markets expand you know as these energy markets expand i think you're going to see agriculture expand into those markets Mm -hmm. more do you think uh so i know so we just had a new crush plant open kind of in our area for you know, soy-based biofuel, um, what's canola's, like, primary? Like, what are they driving from canola? Like, what type of fuel are they creating out of that? Yeah, it, it's like renewable diesel. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's the, you know, and I mean, I think they'll, they'll use those oils and all kinds of different stuff, but I think the primary demand use will be diesel. Mm-hmm. And uh, as they, sh- you know, like as the, um, the fossil fuel diesel is regulated away, you know, th- like... And, you know, this is this is partially politician or government-driven because if we were to see a administration not as friendly to renewables, you know, I don't think it's something you're ever going to see go away, but you, you may see it not as strongly regulated uh, into that avenue, mm-hmm. you know, with a different administration. But under the current administration that we're under, and if we continue to see administrations similar to this— um, you're going to see those fossil fuels. I mean, fossil fuels are never going to go away, not in our lifetimes and probably not in our children's and grandchildren's lifetimes. But they are going to be begin to be reduced um, as our capacity to use re- renewable sources expands. Mm-hmm. Can you use I – mean, I, I actually don't know this. Do you know if you can use renewable forms of oil to produce things like plastics because people often forget like one of the main derivatives of oil isn't just fuel but it's also being able to produce all of our synthetic plastics that goes in literally everything we touch yes and you know soybeans are a crop that are used in plastics so you know i'm not well versed in uh, materials uh and how they're used or whatever but um i do know that the compounds that are derived from those oils can be used into plastics and um, fiberglasses and other type of materials, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, the um, the crops are capable of producing similar oils to, like, what the earth produces. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty interesting to, you know, to see a crop that we can grow that takes less than a, you know, 
a seven or eight month window to produce uh, is able to, you know, become a raw material and a product we're using each and every day that's other than food. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about like renewable fuels, I think one of the main concerns a lot of people have with or, you know, have been posed against corn and soy specifically, you know, and this is not something I think is prevalent today, but there was, there was a time where corn on corn and soy on soy, that was just what you did. You know, you just would go, sure. do corn ground, corn ground, corn ground. And most people have switched to rotations. They're now rotating through crops. Cover crops have been pretty widely adopted. Um, do you think there's like concerns with, you know, nutrient deficiencies from now, you know, now we're going to start probably also trying to engineer crops to be able to produce more oil on mm-hmm. that end too. Like, do you think we're going to run into like soil deficiencies because of the way we're, you know, if we're going to shift away from, you know, fossil fuels and start doing all these renewables, you know, we're taking a bunch of something at some place, you know, are we going to start now just shifting that to the soil? Like, what do you think? Well, you know, here's kind of the way I look at it is like anytime we're taking something from the earth, um, you know, all living organisms, use the same elements so uh you know just like dirt um you know is like if you look at what it consists of it's similar to our bodies you know like we uh have the exact same elements in our bodies as that dirt does you know Mm -hmm. we're uh and like when you take something um say you're growing a soybean or a uh, wheat crop in that field or a corn plant um it's going to remove the basic elements from the ground, which are calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, you know, all these things. We know exactly what these crops are taking out of the soil. And uh, the soil exists with those compounds naturally in it, uh, in, you know, in copious amounts. And um, as we take those nutrients away, uh, we're also replacing replacing them back um, in forms that are mined from the ground. Um, so we're replacing the elements that are taken back. And uh, I think it's important to remember that there is a science behind it. And, like, we actually tissue sample these plants and soil sample. So we know exactly uh, the removal rates of these crops and, you know, Every crop requires maybe a little bit different uh, mix of elements, but they are very similar where, you know, calcium is very important to our bodies and very important to a plant. And, um, you know, everything under calcium is important as well, but um, all these elements are easily replaceable. Like we do have a science that replaces them. So it's, as these crops are taken off the field, it's something that we can replace uh, either through manures or through commercial fertilizer. So um, it's not something that, you know, every crop offers a different challenge, but it's also something we can manage around. So if, uh, say, canola, you know, I'm not as familiar with canola as I am with corn and beans, but, you know, I know it's a heavy user of nitrogen. So you know as the demand for canola rises you know the demand for nitrogen will also rise and um and that's it goes across the board with any crop as any crop becomes more popular there there will be an element that it uh you know that is kind of like its favorite above all the others that will become more in demand and 
but that's something that the market will supply and it's something that uh you know that our fertilizer uh distributors have the ability to supply so it's it's not something that's a worry mm-hmm. i guess that's a long way to tell you it's not a worry <laughs> do you think uh you think with uh the reduction in especially consumer gas vehicles we're going to see or i mean i already know for a fact we're going to see a reduction in ethanol which is a huge consumer of sure. corn. you know i think i know uh, i know the corn lobbyists have been lobbying really hard for ethanol but i think i can't remember whether it was a week ago or two weeks ago Someone, someone up in Congress had already proposed a bill to kind of like reduce our ethanol usage across the board. Just, yep. You know, a bunch of stuff about that. Like, I don't know. Have you? I don't know if you've seen any of that or research saying that. But. You know, I, I'm. You know, I'm a proponent of ethanol, and I know it's not. Uh, like when you look at renewable uh, biodiesel, you know, it's not as um, friendly as that uh, to produce. But you know, the um, Ethanol, when when the price of corn drops low enough, ethanol does become a fairly efficient fuel. So, you know, as we see erosion in the markets, uh, ethanol becomes a player again. And um, I, and I think you're right. Over the long term, we're going to see ethanol regulated out. And, you know, and that's kind of, you know, the biodiesel coming in there and taking its market. And, uh, and that's what, you know, that's why you see and hear a shift coming in the acres over the next 10 years is because of you know government regulation but it's just more efficient to create a biodiesel than it is create an ethanol type fuel and you know i think um, those auto manufacturers actually like the biodiesels and they're not a super huge fan of ethanol it's a hotter burning fuel yeah, I know. I used to wrench on a lot of stuff. I mean, especially small engines just can't handle that no, they, ethanol, the combustion. It's just so, it's way more alcohol-based than what regular gas is, and so it evaporates really easily and dries on the sides yep. of the, uh, cylinder walls way too easily. And so I know it just, especially lubrication, you know, if you are if you have a, you know, a higher running RPM engine or a smaller engine that has a less robust oil system. I know it just really just accelerates wear a ton. Yeah, I think the airlines, you know, like ethanol, but like the auto manufacturers, not a fan. Yeah, there's just too many move. There's too many moving parts in vehicle engines for yeah. it to be something that you know works well. You know, I know, but and I and I know there's some manufacturers like our Subaru runs significantly better on ethanol, surprisingly. But my old truck, you know, you put ethanol in that thing, you can just tell it's just. Yeah, it's choking the whole time trying to get more combustion out of the engine. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the the beauty of di- any type of diesel fuel is it's got lubrication. For those of you who don't know, diesel fuel has lubrication built into it. It's way more oil based than what uh, gas is. Gas will evaporate if you leave it out. Diesel's not going to evaporate if you leave it out. It's it's oil like you would put in your engine. You sure. know, so it's got a natural lubrication built into it, which is you know that's why you can get millions of miles out of semis because the the fuel it's using is also aiding and keeping it running so. it'll actually grow algae so it's a pretty natural form of uh yeah. you know as as much as you're going to get anything petroleum based natural i mean yeah an organism can actually live in it so yeah yeah diesels that's such a cool fuel <laughs> it is for anyone who doesn't understand like the principles behind diesel for what it is and how efficient it is like say what you will about fossil fuels or whatever side you're on diesel is so efficient at what it does and it's so significantly i don't say it's significantly it's pretty easy to make it's easy to make diesel it's easy to run diesel 
and it will just yeah it's just a phenomenal type of fuel you know you always when i was a kid i never understood um until i was older why mercedes-benz and um volkswagen had diesel cars but then after you realize hey they had it right then uh you know and this kind of went away from that model Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, across the world, if you ever travel outside the U.S., I mean, everything's running diesel. Sure. It's, the, the percentage of gas cars is diesel cars. You know, I remember I was in France and everything over there, you know, you'd be driving a minivan with a diesel engine and a <laughs> stick shift. It's just totally different than what we have here in the U.S. But, you know, we've regulated diesel so heavily here in the U.S. It's kind of been like, well, if your small car is not getting 50, 60 miles to the gallon, which a diesel car can do. Sure depending on your tailpipe emissions and all that stuff. But, I mean, the rest of the world's running diesel on just about everything. Yes, it, it's a super efficient fuel. And, um, you know, and I think you'll kind of see that trend. I think you're already seeing it here is the auto, you know, some of the auto manufacturers are off, offering diesel in their SUVs and now in their small pickups. And yeah. it's just an expanding market. Yeah. Oh, man, I 100% agree. I wish I could get all of my vehicles in diesel. For sure. It doesn't make sense for me, unfortunately, to import a Toyota Helix pickup from overseas that cost me way too much just to even get across the border. But I'll still drive my 2011 375,000 mile gas burner, I guess. <laughs> yeah, fuel means nothing to you when you're a farmer. That, you truck. Know, that, that truck, that truck <laughs> sips fuel compared to that combine. How many, how many uh, gallons an acre do you burn, or an hour? In you that know, combine? I, th- I think I was watching it the other day, and it's around 18. So. It'll annihilate some fuel. <laughs> At dyed diesel prices, that's like what three, <laughs> three bucks a gallon. I think they were uh, they were saying yesterday. I think it was a three sixty or seventy. So, I luckily <laughs> that we were talking about contracting some fuel, and I contracted some fuel last fall, and they're delivering a transport of that contracted fuel today. It felt pretty good. Let's see. Let's let's see. Three times eighteen. What's that math? That's pretty decent chunk yeah Yeah. oh man (laughs) do not envy you do not envy you (laughs) no we can vaporize some money it's amazing how much uh how much money outflows in a week from a farm that's you know um heavily industrialized it just you know transport loads of uh propane and uh diesel fuel they add up fast oh yeah 8500 gallons at a time you're you're burning hundreds of gallons of fuel a day it is you run run out of fuel in your fuel truck typically if you don't have a big trailer i mean you'll you'll go through it it's really unbelievable how much uh demand these large farms have for fuel you know they it's a it that's why it's you know like you see people demonizing these uh fuels you know like fossil fuels but they're feeding everybody you know so let's not demonize them too hard because these uh, modern farms cannot operate without copious amounts of fossil fuels yeah yeah or renewables you know Mm -hmm. yeah we were even talking yesterday it's like we you know a lot of the construction heavy equipment's moving towards diesel electric hybrids and we were talking about them i wonder wonder how much fuel you could probably save if you could somehow switch some farm machinery over to that diesel electric hybrid you know you're still you're still running diesel, but you're reducing, you know, you're using the efficiency of what an electric motor could provide, you know, comparatively. And it'd probably be, or probably 20%, 30%, depending on what you're doing. I think a tractor, you know, I think some tractors could definitely save yeah. 30% on fuel. And you'll probably see that over the next few years as, as you know, this becomes more wide use and uh, the, you know, the knowledge base expands. Those engineers, man, they're sharp and uh, 
they can come up with some amazing products. And well, it depends on the engineer you're talking to. <laughs> <laughs> the one who designed that ladder on that combine? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it was probably a Friday. Yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes they just get to the point and they're like, they've designed their mind out and they're just like, you know, the, on the little small things, you just give up and like, we got to go to market with this product. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so we think, uh, we think, you know for a fact canola is going to start being grown here more uh what do you think about wheat do you think we're going to see more wheat you know i think you will i think um you know as wheat's a, a very good way to to feed lots of people and as uh, the population expands the demand for wheat is going to grow and uh you know wheat is something that's widely adapted to a lot of environments mm-hmm. it's uh fairly uh you know high yielding and you know, it provides a good erosion barrier as well. So it has multiple benefits. It can be grown across wide geographies. Um, And it can be grown over a winter too. That's what a lot of people free. Like we don't do that in Iowa, but here, I mean, winter wheat's pretty regular around here. It is. You know, it's one of the main crops here in Kentucky. And um, we probably don't utilize it as much as some of our neighbors utilize it. But, um, you know, there's some people in Kentucky or probably a a, a, a large portion of growers don't grow a soybean that's not behind wheat so double crop is a big thing here it generates a ton of money for our state um you know you can get two crops off in a season you get a, a wheat crop and then an old crop in soybeans and um you know sometimes the bean yields are cut a little short because they are seeded into june but like this year with the type of season we had it wouldn't surprise me to see the double crop yields very similar to the early season beans that were planted in April just due to the growing season you know the uh, perfect weather uh, for a light soybean crop Mm -hmm. and you know the south um, is well suited to that type of thing and you know I think you're seeing wider adaptation of the wheat uh, bean mix in the south you know as that uh, how, how much water does it take typically to grow like a good wheat crop? You know, it's pretty uh, it's pretty low requirement for water. I would think, you know, we receive just a ton of water here, 60 inches a year. So it's, it's a very wet environment and it can be uh, instrumental to our wheat crop some because it is it needs water at certain times, but it is not a lover of water like corn. Um, so it goes through a flowering period um, that is in our area, like in May, of what makes a really good wheat crop here in Kentucky is if it's fairly dry in that time period in May and and cool. And so our wheat crop here, a lot of times how good the quality and amount is, is based upon that grain field period in May. It does need rain during that grain field period. Um, you know wheat is a crop that if it can receive an inch or two of rain when it's getting established and then a couple of inches of rain during that grain field period and it's fairly cool you know it hates hot weather uh when it's flowering and it flowers for about 10 10 days to two weeks if it can avoid uh you know a high 80 degree situation its ability to produce uh, a large amount of grain is pretty high mm-hmm. so you know it is an efficient crop it's a it's a crop 
that's pretty nutritious. And um, I think, you know, over the next 10 years, it's kind of like canola. It's going to take a larger position, I feel like, in the United States agriculture and just overall in world agriculture. Yeah, I, uh, we were talking yesterday about this again. And I, I'm no expert. I don't even want to think that I know what I'm talking about. I am not a farmer. I do not grow crops every day. But I do have the opportunity to travel to a lot of farms and to meet a lot of different people across a lot of different states. And I know if, you know, we've had, you know, Iowa's had a couple of series of dry years and a lot of the Midwest, we've been having some, I don't want to say prolonged droughts, but if we continue to see shifts towards some, you know, drier trends over a couple of years, which hasn't been uncommon at all in the past couple of decades of multi-year dry spells, you know, I think there's, I think there might be a shift towards a crop that could, you know, do with, you know, corn, corn, yeah, corn and soy are pretty water intensive, especially corn. I mean, you see, you know, there's a reason there's variants called dry land corns because you have to figure out how to grow those things in dry conditions. If you can get a wheat crop off, a healthy wheat crop off with a fraction of the water of what you're doing with corn, I think, you know, I think Western Iowa could definitely see some more of that just with guys are already irrigating out there same with nebraska there's so much irrigation in nebraska if they can cut down on their if we can see a higher demand for wheat as population increases i could definitely see the demand for corn probably go down just a little bit and then you know it's pretty easy i'll say it's pretty easy if you can get your hands on a drill it's pretty easy to get a wheat crop in and if you've already if you're already doing soybeans you probably already got the draper head and so i think it's a it'd be a pretty easy transition for a lot of people who are just wanting to start out in that you know i know if you're even if you're cover cropping i mean you've got if you can cover crop you've probably got the ability to put a wheat crop in as yeah, well that, that's one of the best things about wheat is it doesn't require any specialty anybody that's set up for corn and soy can grow wheat you know and i think here's something that people don't think about when they're growing wheat or they don't realize the benefit of is it the crop mass that it leaves behind improves the organic matter in the tilth of the soil so any crop that's grown after wheat especially the season after you know maybe not as much as double crop soybeans because they they're in the field with the organic matter but as that organic matter begins to decay uh, your soil will improve it retains moisture and the next crop grown the next season will actually be better than the neighbor's field that hadn't had wheat grown on it so um Wheat offers more benefits than just the current crop that's growing in the field. It offers benefits for your land and for your future yields. So not only are you getting the benefit of your, uh, you know, your crop that's grown in the field, you get the benefit for next year's crop too. So if you're managing, you know, if you're in some of those western areas that uh, are low on rainfall or in a dry period, wheat makes a lot of sense because it's not using uh, the amount of water like a corn crop would. And then the next crop, the next year, is going to benefit from it being in the field and, you know, the soil's added ability to hold water because of that. You know, I think it's pretty interesting. Here this year in Kentucky, we received that big old long dry period. And I've noticed that um, we're in a heavy cover crop and wheat situation here on our farm, but the areas that had the most mass the last you know three or four years whether it be a super long-term hybrid that had just a ton of uh you know dry corn matter or a wheat crop or a fully mature rye crop those fields are higher yielding this year versus the ones that didn't have as much crop matter on top why is that well it's because of that grounds added ability to hold water because of that organic matter that that heavy mass crop provided and so um wheat has a lot of benefits and 
um, yeah, I, I think you'll see as uh, you know, as trends in uh, ag change, and you know, it seems like our western environments are kind of drying out some. Um, you'll probably see those acres begin to shift towards something like wheat. Yeah, absolutely, I agree, and I think I mean, selfishly, photographer. Man, wheat is a beautiful crop to witness getting harvest. It's it just is like it's so picturesque the rolling wheat fields and just it's golden. You know, as soon as the dust gets in the air and sun comes out, it's like the definition of a golden harvest is a wheat harvest. <laughs> you know, I think it, as a farmer, um, if if you're a farming nerd, you know, and a lot of us are that farm, uh, we love to grow things. And you know, a soybean is a it can be raised as a high management crop but it takes a very skilled grower to make it a high management crop versus a corn or a wheat. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't take skill to grow those crops, but they um, respond to high management very well. Both crops do. Think of wheat as a mini corn crop. It, um, anything you do to it, you know, management-wise, it responds to, you know, majorly so it's a fun crop to grow you know i enjoy growing corn because like as you manage corn you can watch the health of the plant improve you know you know you make a move on corn and by the next week you can tell you've made the move Mm -hmm. you know soybeans to me is frustrating not as good at growing soybeans um and i you know it's taken me longer to understand how the plant works and you don't see those subtle changes as fast in soybeans as you do in a corn crop or a wheat crop and so if you've never grown wheat before you know you you don't realize that that plant is capable of uh you know large expansion of yield due to small management practices it's very similar to corn i've never got to grow a a crop of cotton but the cotton guys you know love to manage their crop and uh because it's a highly responsive crop and wheat's very very similar to corn and cotton so if you love high management crops and you've never grown a crop of wheat you'd be fascinated at that little plant mm-hmm. and i hear a lot of people you know we harvest our corn green a lot of times in kentucky and yeah i see people you know comment on that and um you know i don't know if uh you know if people think about this but a plant is meant to be green when it's harvested and it's grain be dry so if a plant is extremely healthy and it's been managed correctly when you go to harvest it the grain should be dry and the plant should be green we can't always achieve that here but that's always what we strive for i would we, like i would like an iowa corn grower to come on this podcast in the next few weeks because you know i most corns harvested like green corn is bad to harvest where I'm at. <laughs> maybe i'm wrong but i it's always dry as can be <laughs> you know if um if if a, if a corn or a wheat crop is managed correctly its plant will be green and its uh shuck will be brown we're for and, we're for sure gonna clip that little section we're gonna post it on instagram <laughs> and tiktok and i'm just gonna wait for the comment section to fill up with everyone who says no you're wrong neil you don't know what you're talking I about i saw a couple of people say you're a sinning on there cutting that green corn you know and uh but um you know if you if you want to see somebody really speak to this uh you talk to uh 
you know, those guys in a next level program that have uh, been under Randy Dowdy or David Hula or uh, the guys over there at uh, CNC Ag Solutions at Mayfield, they um, they are on board with me on this. You know, Does anyone around here know Randy Dowdy? I hear that name thrown around all the time. So he's I... actually been to this farm before. He's an interesting fella, super intelligent. Um, one of the, you know, his. Uh, for those of you who don't know who he is, he's a very famous corn grower. He which is. In he, the farm world, is cool to people. You know, for a little <laughs> while, he held the, uh, you know, the highest uh, field average ever, ever cut. I think David Hula surpassed him now. But um, still, you know, and one of the best growers that has probably ever uh, lived, actually, you know. And wasn't a, wasn't a generational farmer, just... Um, you know, picked it up and and really did a bunch of research and and has brought a bunch of concepts to the ag world that are interesting and um, he is uh, you know he's a detail guy he he kind of reminds me of how my dad is as how uh, minute details matter and uh, yeah he's you know he 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 adheres to that concept too that corn should be green when you harvest it. Um, I'm not knocking you if you have brown corn when you harvest it. Your yields may be better than mine, but could your yields be better if it was grain when you harvest it because it was more healthy, mm-hmm. possibly. So, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's controversial, isn't it? <laughs> I'm fine with that. I, I'm not afraid of controversy. You know, and wheat's the same way. Like, um, if wheat's really managed correctly, and this is this is crazy to think about, but especially if you've ever seen a wheat field when it's extremely healthy and it's going to yield its highest ability to uh the plant will actually be green as that uh, gourd is over there and the wheat head will be brown and it will look like you shouldn't be able to harvest it but the grain will be coming in the tank dry interesting i haven't been able to achieve that many times but i have seen it a few times in my career yeah does it have to do with like the water content of like the ground itself like if you had a super heavy rain year would it be hard for that head to dry out compared to the stock you know uh, it's actually due to um the health of the plant so it's mostly about the disease uh that's come into the plant and um and then the way it's dried down so when a plant is completely healthy you know it's full of chlorophyll and sugars and uh, as either a disease pressure ticks up or um, water need is, uh, and, and, and here's, an, I don't know if people understand this about plants, probably if you're a farmer, you don't, but um, like a plant uses water more efficiently when it has everything it needs at its disposal. Well, what does it need? Calcium, phosphorus, magnesium. You know, you go on down the list of all the elements or whatever, it needs all those things in certain amounts. If it has everything it needs readily available, it doesn't have to use as much water uh, in the course of its life. So if, okay, so we'll say we're growing a crop of wheat out in this field and it doesn't have readily available nutrients. Well, how does it get those nutrients? It uses, it uptakes more water. And as that more water is uptake, then it's able to glean the nutrients it needs to produce grain. So when a plant is extremely healthy, and it has all its nutrients available close. Um, not, uh, or I'll plug, uh, you know, row place fertilizers and uh, strip till here. Place fertilizers work, you know. Why do they work? Because they put that element right where the plant needs it in the root zone. And um, when that 
element is readily available for the plant, it has to use very little water to get the nutrient amount it needs. And so in this, when, okay, so think about this. If you were to only eat fruits and vegetables in your life, your body becomes very efficient in its use of these nutrients. And in turn, your body becomes very healthy and it sheds diseases easier. So a plant is the exact same. You'll live longer if you eat correctly uh, and you'll have the ability to eat less and take less water in Mm -hmm. versus if you eat unhealthy uh, and your body uh, has to take in copious amounts of junk food to achieve the nutrient level that you need and you also have to drink water to filter all that junk food out wait 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 wait. so what i'm hearing is everyone who's been telling me to drink more water all these years really just isn't eating healthy well (laughs) you should always drink water you know we we're we're made up of water you know it's a big part of our bodies 50 percent or so and plant is the same way it needs lots of water but what i'm telling you is if if you or the plant is getting everything it needs through nutritious food, it doesn't have to be supplemented with as much food or as much water to sustain. And a plant taking in exactly what it needs right where it needs it will be much healthier and much more able to sustain uh, periods of stress such as disease or drought if it has everything it needs, your body will be able to as well. A plant will live longer when it's healthier, and so will a person. That's very interesting. Interesting. So you mentioned strip till there. Like, uh, you don't have a strip till rig. What yeah. do you, so, so from your knowledge of – so now we're, now we're starting an adventure. If you, if you don't know what strip till is, strip tilling is a – it's a form of tillage that – it's kind of tillage. It's kind of not tillage. It's very trendy tillage right now. It is. Uh, you – you basically you've got a specific rig that's designed to go down usually rows and you're placing nutrients directly where that plant is going to be planted or has already been planted i haven't seen many people do it after planting but that, that anyways look up strip till bar and it'll it'll make a little more sense yeah so what a strip till is is basically um so you have like what you have conventional tillage which is just work in the soil or then you have no till which is you just plant into the seed bed just the way it is in nature or the way it was left the previous year with strip till, you're leaving, uh, you know, like 90% of the field yep. in no till, and you're tilling a seven inch band on every row. And what that band is doing is it's preparing the seed bed uh, for the current crop. But it's also, with these strip till rigs, they have the ability to put a fertilizer at a certain depth, like five or six. You know, I'm not a strip till guy, I'm a no till guy. But, um, you know, they're putting these nutrients at a certain level in the seed bed, and I think it's like five or six inches. Don't shoot me if I'm if I'm telling you wrong about that strip-till guy. But, um, but that's basically what they're doing is they're just putting the nutrient at the bottom of the seed bed and uh, allowing the plant to grow down to it and get what it needs. Yeah. You know, with my operation here, we have uh, like a sand soil here. It's a sand loam, and it's highly erodible. And I'm not saying, you know, I have a neighbor that's strip tilling and doing a very good job with it. But the way I've set my operation up is I'm no-till and I band uh, my fertilizer with, uh, you know, row placing, uh, but with a banding type unit. I I don't till the soil here. Not to say you can't. Yeah, we're going to try to get his neighbor to, we're going to convince him to let us at least look at his strip till rig for a video because it's very... 
it's it's not a new concept, but it's very it's gained a ton of popularity in the farm world in probably the past like three or four years. It has. So, and now that you know, when John Deere comes out with their own strip till bar, that you know mean, it's that, gonna- that 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 just means that okay, <laughs> if Big Papa Deer has caught on to this. That means, all right, this is something that's going to be at least around for a while and at least yeah. here to stay, even if it is just a rebadged Soil Warrior, which we all know it is. No <laughs> offense to Soil Warrior or John Deere. Yeah. It's just you look, you put them right by. There's, there's different colors. That's all Oh, for sure. And, you know, this, you know, Deere seeks out who they think is the dominant player in the market. Soil Warrior is offering uh, probably the best rig on the market. So, you know, here, here comes Deere. Like, yeah, I like that idea. Yeah. And uh, I think it's, de- you know, like I've watched Mike's yields improve. Uh, replacing that fertilizer um you know we took different approaches to it but um you know we are very close to each other in proximity around a mile um we're very close friends uh we watch each other farm we talk every day i've already talked to mike this morning um and we have very similar ideas uh of you know of the way a crop should be fertilized but different execution mm-hmm. but i've watched mike i know his yields are very similar to ours and uh he's just taking a different approach to it so is strip till here to stay in my opinion it is i've watched him improve his yields with strip till yeah. and uh, he took a different approach than my banding approach but they're similar concepts just executed differently yeah well, that's the beauty of farming is it's kind of you're you're like it's like playing a strategy board game like you are you have all these moving pieces all going around at once and you can you and the other player can just approach it in totally different mindsets and approaches but in the end your goal is the same you're all trying to grow the same crop and so that's that's the beauty of farming is you can do it your whole life and you're always still going to try to figure out you know you talk about randy dowdy being just just awesome farmers like well he very he's very clearly a detail-oriented strategetic person not strategic i've been corrected on that quite a few times he's a strategic person so he's thinking all right if i do this it might have this you know it's it's step after step after step hopefully planned in advance saying i think this will work and if i do this after this will work and if i do this after so strip till strip till is also you know it's something it requires more labor because you now have to run another rig through the field before you even plant but you know benefits are he might have better placement you know he, you you could pull out your guys's root structures on both of those and you know he might have actually a healthier root structure than maybe yours is based on placement but yours could have had a more uh, aptly primed uh placement of that fertilizer and it could that could be what's sure. winning you right now but who knows maybe he nails the timing a little better than you and now he's got better root structure and a stronger crop because it was time better and maybe it has better placement and so i'm not this is all hypothetical i'm not saying this is what happened but this is like all this is one of the billion things that could sure. have happened that could have affected all those things and so just another tool in the toolkit of farmers just to grow better crops and so and, and you you would probably know is like if you if he was able if your neighbor or someone else was able to consistently improve their yields over yours based on that practice it would probably then become a consideration of like hey well he's figured something out why don't i learn from him and maybe just give it a shot like hey i'll rent a rig or i'll borrow his rig for a season and just see what i could do with that and i think that's one of the greatest things about farmers and and about the community of farmers is they watch their neighbors and they talk to their neighbors and they see what's working and what's not hopefully if you're not talking to your neighbors you're probably just yeah maybe there's growing better crops than (laughs) that's right if you're if you're not talking to your neighbors you're probably a jealous uh you know and you're not willing to learn or adapt that was Uh, a blanket statement they could be total (laughs) jerks and you might not want to talk 
each other. There's plenty of reasons why people don't talk to each other. I don't want to. I don't want you to take away from this podcast that we're saying that you're a bad person for not talking to your neighbors. No, you should go talk to your neighbors because you'll probably learn something. Really, at the end of the day, I mean, we're all out here trying to do the same thing, and you know, everybody's just trying to be productive in their business. And um, I'm not saying that there's not uh, people out there that you know that aren't the nicest people, but um, there, you know, talking to your neighbors is important in the farming world, but. You know, we were talking about, uh, you know, how everybody does something differently. And that's uh, what I want everybody in the ag world and outside the ag world. One of the things I would like to see is people understand that there's a lot of different ways to get to the same goal. You know, not everybody has to farm the same. Everybody's operation is different. Their environmental conditions are different. Their soil types are different. Not every practice that works like no-till and cover crops have worked really well for us here in Kentucky, but our environment and our soils are very conducive to it. Something that might not work as well in like Minnesota or maybe in your, uh, you know, your area of Iowa. Um, I don't know because I'm not in those areas, but don't shoot the person that is uh, still full tillage or um, practicing a different practice than you just because it's different than you. Uh, maybe they know something you don't about their environment. So mm-hmm. um, don't be arrogant enough to think that just because you do it a certain way that your neighbor has to do it that way as well i i watched a video the other day um it was talking about how basically there was two you know this is before we had the telescopes we do now uh there was two groups of astronomers one was looking at all the the kind of basically what we would call our milky way galaxy um, you know, when you're looking in the sky, you see just kind of a lighter strip. One group is arguing is like, hey, this is just a bunch of really far out distant stars that this far away just look like a cloud. This other group was saying, no, it's a bunch of space gases that are just lit up from all the light passing through them. So there's two groups of people and they both were fighting each other saying, you're wrong, I'm right. You're wrong, I'm right. So they got together, they built a giant telescope to actually figure this all out. Turns out they were both right. It was a bunch of far off distant stars, but there also was a cloud of gas that was passing somewhere close to them. And so moral of the story being, I think it was on, I think it was Hank Green as a guy. Yeah, Hank Green's YouTube channel. And basically the point of the story was like, they were both right the whole time. Right. And they both were just crucifying each other saying, you're wrong, you're wrong. They were right. They just were, they had different theories based on this thing. And, you know, I, I saw that and I was like, wow, we need to hear more of that. I was like, you can both be right. That's for sure. That doesn't mean the other person has to be wrong. That's Sometimes right. they are, but they don't have to be wrong. And just, <laughs> and, and every, and I'd say 90% of the time when it comes to arguments or debates and politics, life, soil, all these things, most people are actually all on the same page. We all really want the same thing. We're just disagreeing on our methods to get there. You, know, right. you look at the, you look at the Democrat and Republican parties, all the Republicans want one thing. All the Democrats want one thing. And depending on the topic, it could vary a little. But if you ask them, you know, what's your end goal in this? Both of them say, well, we want a better nation. We want a better country. You know, we want to be, we, we want people better off than they were before. You ask both sides, they're going to say the same thing. They just vary way widely in their, right. their addressing of the topic. And it's same with soil. It's like, sure. You want to you grow a good crop, right? You want to make sure, you know, you want to make sure your soil is taken care of so you can grow good crops and your ground doesn't get just absolutely thrashed. Ask most farmers, they're all going to say, yeah, we want that. But their approaches could be totally, totally different. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing. Of, it, it's why, I mean, it's not only with farming, it's with all things that there's so many different uh, ways to achieve the same end goal. And, uh, you know, and people get so tore up about, uh, you know, 
somebody doing something different than them but um they're probably doing it different for a reason uh, because they've uh they've found success in the way they're doing it over a period of time and uh you know we shouldn't be arrogant enough to think that you know the way somebody else is doing it may possibly be better than the way that you're thinking about that they should be doing that <laughs> mm-hmm. the way they're trying to achieve their end goal so pretty uh <laughs> that's one of the debates i see just you know all the time in agriculture yeah i think uh you'll you'll start you'll hear us talk about this a lot neil and i are both very uh big picture people and i'd say we're both very uh philosophical people in the sense of like we care you know the practice matters and the way you do things does matter but more importantly the way you're thinking about the situation the way you're approaching it is just as important and we'll talk about i I talk a lot about worldviews and the way we view things and you know we get so we get so caught up in the details and the actual like doing of the things that we often forget to take a step back and like what why are we actually doing this thing in the first place like zoom out a little and you'll hear us you know it's really easy in the farming industry and in life in general to get really focused on all these details when you you're never actually addressing the real root of the issue which is typically a principle or an idea or a belief that either could be misconstrued or just yeah pretty wild and so i think just keeping that in mind we'll talk about that a lot it's just like we care a lot about the way people approach things far more than what they're actually doing. The yeah. way you approach something is going to dictate how you go about that thing, but we get focused on that thing and we don't take the step back and say, okay, why are we actually doing this in the first place? You know, in the world today, everything's so polarized. And I think a lot of it's because we have these iPhones and uh, we have the ability to see things instantly. And so people get super polarized and passionate about sm- very small issues. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you take a step back and you look, um, you know, those very small issues that they're, uh, you know, harping on or, or hyper-focused on in the grand scheme of things might not matter that much. Yeah. There may be multiple ways to approach that same problem. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you logically think about it. Like, how many conclusions have you formed because you've seen a second, seven-second video of something on the Internet? I, I, I think was, I've done that so many times where sure. I, have, I have taken some little Instagram or TikTok video seeing it as like oh that must have been a person who's there man that's a pretty wild situation i should definitely form some beliefs off of that whether i realize it or not i'm creating this like subconscious bias towards a situation that if i talked to that person i could have like a totally different view it was like oh that was just a seven second video how many of you could like get to know someone from a seven second video no you couldn't it's no. impossible but we we jump to these conclusions and we form these opinions because we have instant access to it and we're told well, everything on the internet is true. It all happened. Only things like, yeah, it may have happened, but you don't have the full context. Context, if you, uh, if any of you, you know, I went to Bible college, <laughs> so a big part of studying the Bible is studying context. You know, we don't, you know, if you just take one verse out, you're actually totally misapplying what that verse actually meant. So you have to read a lot of things around that. You know, the same with anything. You're studying history. You can't just study one moment in history because you could totally miss the big context. Like, yeah, this guy may have gone to the store that day, but, you know, 9-11 was happening at the same time like like what's you know proportionally what's actually going on like what are we focusing on like if you ask any historian a situation like that, they're like yeah you have to, you know for the sake of it being accurate you have to look at the big picture not sure. just one thing yeah you need to hear both sides and you need cooperating facts too and that's interesting about the bible you know like you can take anything out of context in, in the bible and you can make it mean whatever you want yeah but you can find uh if you can find 10 or eight verses that corroborate that verse you know 
then uh, you find the true meaning of that verse. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, and I think that's a that's a good picture of life too. Is like, um, you know, it's very easy to see a very uh, small emotional thing drive uh, you know an idea that you have in your head, but when you step back and you look and look at all the different situations that it took to to get that little small snippet like you were talking about. There's lots of different cooperating, uh, you know, events that have happened, you know, that you might not even be thinking about in your head when you're getting super emotional about that little seven-second snippet you saw. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I, you know, see, here we are going to the, and I, you know, anxiety and, you know, depression have been on the rise for two decades. And I would, I would, I'd probably argue a lot of it is because we do have an extended knowledge of what's going on. But the other part of it is we jump to conclusions because of that and let that dictate how we think about a situation. Like I'm a pretty stressed out and anxious person a lot. And usually if I think rationally for a couple seconds, you know, I just think a couple steps around, I was like, okay, like rationally, the worst is probably not going to happen. You take a step back, you look at this like, okay, you know, we all look at the bigger picture people. The same, that's the whole thing with agriculture is like we, we're missing a much bigger picture when we get so focused on farmers destroying the planet, soil this, soil that. It's like, you're missing the big picture. Like, think about the billions of people who eat every day. That's right. Like, think about that. <laughs> and how important it is that they uh, are able to eat. Yeah. You know, I tell my guys this all the time, and it's something I've learned in my life, is that it's never as good as it seems, and it's never as bad as it seems. So if you take a step back and you think about it, you know, um, whatever you hear that day that is, like, causing you major emotions, 24 hours from there, is it still that emotional to you? Yeah. Probably not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not the first farmer I've ever heard that from. I, uh, if any of you listened to my former farm talk podcast, we had a guy Clay Guider on there. He's an agronomist, and his dad used to tell him that all the time. I was like, things are never actually as bad as they seem, but they're also probably never as good as they seem. It's like probably somewhere right in the middle. And I, I take, I took that and ran with it. I was like, man, that's so true. It's like it is. Yeah, like it's, I, I found that in farming. You know, like I want to mention his name. He's a you know, fellow farmer right here in the county and a good friend of mine's name, Colin Cooper. And, uh, he farms in Oscar, Kentucky. And he had a, um, he had a planter malfunction, um, in the spring and it, um, it, he had his placement too close to his plant and it poisoned his plant. So he had to replant, you know, and he was very emotional about it at the time and upset because Colin waits to an ideal time to plant. So his window's very small or he felt like it was very small. You know, and at the time he called me, you know, and was talking about it. And I said, you know, Colin, I said, there's a chance that you're planting this crop nervous that it won't make because it's so late. That there's a possibility that a late season rain could make a better crop than what uh, you would have if you got it planted on time. Well, what happened? Late season rains. Late season <laughs> rains. Colin planted his crop late. And I would dare to say in his area, he's got the most beautiful crop of anybody that probably the highest yielding and so something that seemed detrimental and super emotional at the time became a blessing mm-hmm. and um you know i think that is this way in life a lot is like we get super emotional over things that happen to us but in the long term we can't see the big picture and it became a blessing mm-hmm. and uh if we just take a step back from those emotional times in our life and see that Maybe um, the mistake that happened that you think is super terrible becomes a blessing to you. So, you know, 
that's a good lesson to us all is, um, sh- you know, we should always take a step back and realize that not everything that seems terrible at the onset is terrible in the end. Amen to that. All right. Well, that's a perfect place for us to stop. Uh, yeah, no, we're going to talk about stuff like that probably pretty frequently on stuff like on, on this podcast. It was like, Hey, like there is, there's a bigger picture. Hey, like breathe a little, think a little, like, let's just calm the situation down yeah, just a little bit. Let's not polarize every situation. Yeah. Be, be listening to podcasts should not leave you wanting to like curl up and, you know, <laughs> hide from the world. You know, if you're listening to podcasts that are making you, uh, constantly worry and well maybe first of all check your heart see where you're at also it's like if the podcast is pretty continually pushing you to be fearful of everything that's going to happen like well nothing's ever done nothing's ever going to get done no you know you know i I, this is pretty i'll 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 finish with this (laughs) in my last comment i I enjoy talking (laughs) but i'm you know i'm i got to be good friends with a lobbyist and you know he was you know like it took me a long time in my life to understand politics. And, you know, he was telling me, you know, he said, anything that you see or hear uh, done in the public um, took a long time to get to that point. So, you know, as we uh, go about in our daily life and you hear about super polarizing things um, on the news and stuff, um, over the course of time, those things usually work themselves out. So don't allow yourself to be super polarized by something that you hear talked about on the news media that they're trying to uh, make you fearful of because over the course of time, that thing will probably work itself out because, uh, you know, as it's adjudicated in the court of public opinion, even if it's uh, super um, abrasive at first, it's usually remedied over time. Mm-hmm. And so we shouldn't get super emotional at the things we see. Um, not to say that you shouldn't get mad if you feel like your politician is doing something that's super hurtful to your business or your community, but that over time those things are remedied through other, uh, you know, other forms or you know other lobbying or other uh, right or writing of laws. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, Take a step back and breathe, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, as long as the Lord tarries, we'll still be here then <laughs> for the next day. Yep, amen to that. Oh. All right, well, thanks for tuning in, guys. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Um, share, like, subscribe, do all those things. Um, we're gonna keep going with this thing, so we're we'll hopefully start having some people on here pretty soon. Start talking about things that are more than just Neil and I chit chatting all day because we do that plenty. So we can uh, <laughs> we can save that talk for our conversation. We don't have to just sit here and uh, just chit chat all the time. But yeah, no, we're excited. Uh, yeah, keep following along, keep sharing, keep liking. Uh, take a breath. It's okay to breathe. You know, the world's not gonna collapse <laughs> overnight. Well. There's always the like there is like that one percent chance it could, but you know, most of the time it doesn't. Yeah, most of the time it's not going to. Much. Less than one percent. One percent's a pretty high percent for the world collapse. <laughs> All right, we're gonna end it there, guys. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Uh, like, you. share, and subscribe. Thank you. Yep.